You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. At some time or another, you've probably heard someone railing against tax exemptions for churches. You may have even heard someone say that it goes against our Constitution to give a church a tax exemption. But we're here today to explain why certain tax exemptions for religious organizations are perfectly constitutional. In fact, Contrary to giving churches some cozy relationship with the government, these exemptions actually foster greater separation between the church and the state. The case we're talking about today involves the Chicago Embassy Church, a church with a huge community presence, and one that relies on a specific tax exemption, the pastor's housing allowance. Chicago's South Side has been plagued by violence for decades. Gangs are rampant, poverty is widespread, and community resources are stretched thin. It's a notoriously rough part of town. In the midst of it all, churches have been a signpost to hope in the South Side. One of these churches, the Chicago Embassy Church, has made it its mission to sacrificially serve the Chicago community. As the church's founder, Bishop Ed Peacher puts it, Our mission is to engage the city, wrap our, collectively wrap our arms around the city and love it to health. Every program, everything that we do has to pass through that matrix. Is it going to make a difference in the city? Uh, are we going to communicate the truth of the gospel? Is somebody going to be helped? That mission is actually written into the name of the Chicago Embassy Church. We asked the church's current pastor, Pastor Chris Butler, to explain. In Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul uh, refers to us as ambassadors for Christ. And the place where all the ambassadors coordinate is the embassy. That's why we call it the embassy church, because it's literally, we see ourselves as kind of like a headquarters for this kind of diplomatic mission into the city of Chicago and surrounding areas saying to everybody, hey, the kingdom of God has a an interest in the city, and it is to be reconciled to people and communities in the city. On the ground, this diplomatic mission takes many forms. On Sundays, the church's members serve meals or hand out gift cards so that people can purchase basic necessities. They called the initiative Go Sunday, reminiscent of the Bible's many verses extolling the faithful to go into a hurting world to serve others. The church also runs the Parent Educator Network, which provides educational and social support to new parents, another program for at-risk youth, and a program providing resources to the homeless. But perhaps the ministry that most embodies the Chicago Embassy Church's mission is called the Peace Campaign, which came out of the violence surrounding the church. It was a particular school year, and there were a large, large number of Chicago Public School students that got killed in uh, gun violence. And you heard a lot of, at least I did, you heard a lot of talk of anti-violence efforts. And at some point, the Lord just kind of dropped it into my heart. That's like, anti-violence is not the right approach, right? Like, you don't want to be anti-violence. You want to be pro-peace, right? So where there is, uh, whenever there's darkness in a room, like you don't come into the room and start talking against the darkness, you just turn on the light. And so we conceived of this project called the Chicago Peace Campaign 
where the goal was to literally work with the police department to target the very most violent corners and spots in the city, uh, and then go to those spots in the vo most violent times. So when we when we first started this, there was a corner in Inglewood, 59th and normal. There's nothing normal about it. Um, it was just horrible. It was a dividing line between two uh, rival gangs and just like a, a really tough spot. And we, we'd come out, flashlights, floodlights, turning your car lights, like everybody just bring whatever kind of lights, folks had cameras, whatever kind of lights you have. Uh, we brought kind of like a boom box uh, speaker, played music, and we just hung out. We prayed together, we took communion together, we uh, sang and danced and just brought the light of the church, the light that is the church, to this dark corner. While we were doing that, that summer, we learned from the police district that we created what they called a zero crime pocket. Uh, right around that corner, there was a whole radius where not only on Friday nights, but all throughout the week, there was no violent crime at all. And so we took that model from 59th and Princeton, and start, I mean 59th and Normal, and started to uh, spread it across the city and get other churches involved and go to other corners. We did it on 69th and Ashland. We did it on 51st and Prairie. We did it on 55th and State. Like we were just doing it wherever, kind of like the police would uh, kind of direct us because they, you know, the police department came very connected to the program. The peace campaign was an act of simple love and courage and ended up being a great help to the city. And the peace campaign has grown since then. Now it's not just the Chicago Embassy Church doing it, but hundreds of other congregations too. Last time we prayed, literally we formed a, a cross across the city. We went north and south down State Street and east-west on Madison uh, and literally lined the whole city, both directions across with believers just praying for that one day. Uh, so it's, it's been a, a huge impact, I think, in the city. Uh, and it started right there on 59th and Normal. Pastor Chris's small church is a tremendously positive force in the Southside community. And the Chicago Embassy Church is just one small example of religious ministries doing good all across the country. So many soup kitchens, homeless shelters, adoption agencies, and the list goes on, are sponsored by faith-based organizations. In fact, According to a groundbreaking study by Georgetown professor Brian Grimm, America's religious communities fund over 1.5 million social programs. Churches uh, contribute over a trillion dollars a year to the economy through their social services, through hospital and medical care, uh, and caring for the poor. And you know, this is really something that's just irreplaceable. That's Luke Goodrich, VP and Senior Counsel at Beckett. The contribution of religious organizations to society outstrips that of the, the gross contribution of the top 10 largest tech companies in the country. So that's how big of an impact that churches are having on our, on our society. One of the reasons churches are able to do so much good is because they have a built-in network of volunteers— those 1.5 million social programs run by religious communities around the country, that takes the work of 7.5 million volunteers. Even the people leading these programs are often volunteers, like Pastor Chris. He wasn't always a pastor. 
He's got a background in community organizing and business, having worked on President Obama's Senate campaign in 2004 and then starting up a boutique consulting firm. But he left his job as CEO of that firm to pastor the Chicago Embassy Church because he was called to do it. I don't think that I wanted to be a pastor. That was not part of my plan. The conversations that led to me being a pastor had to do with uh, the fact that I really, I love the Lord and I love the church and I, uh, and I love the congregation of the church. Pastor Chris leads his congregation and the initiatives like the Peace Campaign as an unpaid volunteer. The only compensation he receives is a housing allowance that allows his family to live close enough to the church so he's within easy reach of the congregation when they need him. For over 65 years, a housing allowance from an employer can be tax-exempt if the employee's job requires them to live in a certain place or to use their home for their job. This applies to hundreds of thousands of workers in a variety of professions, including our military and diplomatic corps, prison wardens, state governors, certain healthcare professionals and educators, fishermen, and more. Their housing allowance is tax-free because it's part of their job, much like my employer gave me this microphone to record podcasts, and I'm not being taxed for it. Luke explained this, too. I think of it as starting with my office chair, actually. You know, I'm sitting in an office chair right now that's paid for by my employer. I use a cell phone and a computer that's paid for by my employer. When I go on business trips, my employer gives me cash to cover the cost of my airline ticket and my hotel room and my meals. All of these are valuable benefits provided to me by my employer, and yet none of them are taxed as income. And the question under the tax code is, why not? And the reason is, I'm not receiving these benefits merely to compensate me. I'm receiving them because they help me do my job. Same principle applies to housing. Uh, the quintessential example would be an apartment manager who lives rent-free at, at the apartment complex so he can maintain the property and respond to tenants. His rent-free apartment is tax-exempt because he's given it to enable him to do his job. So as long as we have the, the tax code, the same principle is extended to ministers where they're given a home, they're expected to meet with parishioners in their home, they prepare sermons in their home. Their home is a fundamental aspect of their job as a minister, and so it wasn't treated as subject to income tax. Pastor Chris told us why ministers like him depend on the housing allowance to do their jobs. You want to be present for congregants, right? People have personal emergencies all the time. Uh, and part of what we're doing in the church is, is care for the flock, right? The folks who are in that congregation. So, you know, the, the number of times, you know, I've been called to all types of crazy situations. I mean, you know, some person is depressed and in the basement with a weapon and talking about suicide. Um, and you can't be like, okay, I'll be there an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and w when you do minister in a place like Chicago, and I know that Chicago is not the only city, but it can be very, very expensive to live. And if you're trying to, you're already trying to live off a pastoral salary, which I think in most cases is not a huge salary, that little bit of, of help can be the difference between me being able to live 20 minutes away or having to live somewhere where I would, you know, if I wanted to live in a proper 
kind of accommodation without that housing allowance, you would be talking about moving to the suburbs. And now, you know, you're 45 minutes, hour and 20 minutes away from everything. And it, it just changes the whole dynamic. You can't be there like that. The ability to immediately address a problem is really crucial in a lot of contexts. Emergency responders need to be in close proximity to the problem. People like Pastor Chris, who are able to minister to someone who's having a real crisis, they need to be able to get there. I think we need to acknowledge the value in a community member like a pastor who can be a first responder. It doesn't have to be law enforcement if there's someone like Pastor Chris who can do it effectively because he really knows his community. And Pastor Chris does it because it's his vocation. I call it the blessed ministry of presence, right? Like Christ came to the earth and lived among men who he would minister to. So I think it's important for churches to take that kind of model, especially if you're trying to be a community church which is something that we seek to do. So the housing allowance for pastors has been in the tax code for over 60 years without incident. But in 2011, a group of atheist activists called the Freedom From Religion Foundation, or FFRF, decided they didn't like the fact that ministers were eligible for the tax exemption on housing allowances. Well, what do people do when they don't like something? They sue. In this case, the FFRF sued the IRS, claiming that the housing allowance was giving special treatment to religious ministers. It's not special treatment at all. It's giving ministers the same type of treatment as all of these other workers who face unique job-related demands on their housing. What the case boiled down to is a confused interpretation of the phrase separation of church and state. In our episode about the lemon test, we explored the shady history of that phrase and how it's been used to misinterpret the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Essentially, the idea of church-state separation was born in response to the problem of an established church. England and some of the 13 original colonies actually had an established religion. The established church enjoyed special political privileges and non-members were easily persecuted. That backdrop led our nation's founders to envision a future in which religion could be practiced without state involvement. That's why they framed the Establishment Clause to allow a diversity of faiths to coexist without the state favoring one over another. Still, sometimes the concept is helpful. There are many circumstances in which we actually want church and state to be separate. We don't want the government telling churches how they run themselves, and we don't want churches controlling how the government runs itself. So separation of church and state, while not in the Constitution, can be a healthy and important concept. But people have begun to interpret the phrase not just to mean that church and state should be separate, but that the state shouldn't touch a church with a 10-foot pole. Under that misguided interpretation, some have even squelched fundamental freedoms like speech and expression in the name of church-state separation. For example, one of Beckett's earliest clients was Zachary Hood, a first grader who won a prize to choose a class read-aloud story. He was told he couldn't read his favorite story because it was from the Bible. Another example is when a group called American Atheists sued to force the National September 11th Museum to take down the Ground Zero Cross, a remnant of steel beams from the Twin Towers that happened to be in the shape of a cross. In both cases, atheist activists tried to convince courts that any semblance of religion in a public setting is equivalent to the government establishing a religion. And in both cases, they lost. 
Years later, the same faulty reasoning formed the basis of this lawsuit against ministers receiving the tax exemption for their housing allowances. Rather than keeping the state's hands off of church matters, the Freedom From Religion Foundation wanted actively to exclude ministers from a tax exemption that is widely available to other professions. But ironically, doing that actually works against the idea of separation of church and state. The minister's housing allowance is really an example of government being neutral uh, between church and state. So you have this pre-existing concept in the tax code that if somebody's using their home as, as an essential tool for their job, their home is not taxed as income. And then Congress has extended that to ministers to make sure it's in a clear way and it doesn't entangle the IRS in religious questions. So this is actually healthy separation of church and state. When Luke says that the exemption avoids entanglement, what he means is that the IRS doesn't have to delve into all the activities in the pastor's home and decide which ones qualify as his religious work. How many hours do you spend preparing your sermons here? Do you really need to have your Bible studies here? And all of a sudden the IRS is deeply entangled in religious questions and you violated the separation of church and state. In other words, when you take away an exemption like this one, the end result is mixing up church and state matters far more. Allowing courts to decide these types of questions would open a Pandora's box of lawsuits over internal church affairs, intimately connecting church to state. So to keep church and state truly separate, the best practice would be for the state to treat churches the same way it treats any other entity. But FFRF wanted the housing allowance taken away, only from religious organizations. Legal matters aside, this would have an enormous impact on church communities, particularly in low-income areas. Churches and ministers across the country, regardless of their faith, were facing almost a billion dollars in new taxes every year. And, you know, a billion dollars sounds big because it is big, uh, but even for an individual church like uh, Pastor Chris, uh, Bishop Ed, the, the folks that we were representing, some of these pastors, they don't even get a salary at all. All they get is a housing allowance. Some of these churches would be forced to close if, if the housing allowance were struck down. Others would clearly be forced to curtail vital ministries that are serving their community. And then you just multiply that across tens of thousands of houses of worship across the country, and it would have been devastating. Pastor Chris explains why poor neighborhoods like Chicago Southside would bear the brunt of that. It would have an impact on a lot of folks. It would have disproportionate impact on folks serving poor communities, right? Uh, because the poorer the community you serve, the probably the poorer the congregation. And so you would be taking this resource not away from, you know, like some mega church in Sammy Valley, but for a small church uh, serving a poor community, that little bit can tip the scale and make it not possible to do it anymore. Because, I mean, a lot of these congregations like the one I lead, you know, we're already walking a tightrope. So a little adjustment uh, in the wrong direction can be, you know, can be catastrophic. The power to tax is the power to destroy. The fines would be so staggering that many churches simply wouldn't survive. And even if they did survive, it would greatly diminish the resources they have to serve their communities. Exactly. 
And bear in mind the myriad social services that are run by these religious organizations, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, adoption agencies, hospitals, universities. Do we really want to remove a billion dollars from those budgets? Let's not forget what Luke was saying earlier. The contribution of religious organizations to society outstrips that of the gross contribution of the top 10 largest tech companies in the country. Maybe there are better things to do than to add extra taxes on people doing all of this good. Right, and not tax all the other people who actually take salaries, like diplomats who would still be getting their housing tax-free. Still, FFRF sued the IRS in 2011 to get rid of the exemption, and at first, they won. Yeah, it was a hugely significant lawsuit. And as far as their chance of winning, the atheists actually did win at the trial level. The trial judge ruled in favor of the atheists. They struck down this long-standing provision in the tax code. And the upshot was churches and ministers across the country, regardless of their faith, were facing almost a billion dollars in new taxes every year. Religious organizations all across the country got very nervous at this decision because it's a ruling from an authoritative court saying that this very long-standing tax provision is suddenly unconstitutional. And they're facing the possibility of paying these massive new taxes in the very near future. Uh, but we also saw it as an opportunity because winning a case like this one is a great chance to restore a proper interpretation to separation of church and state and make sure that uh, these sorts of laws are viewed in their proper context and, and kept on the books in order to keep the government out of religious questions. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals actually threw out that trial court decision on technical grounds, but FFRF sued the IRS again in 2016. This time, Beckett was allowed to intervene on behalf of Pastor Chris and a few other churches. And the reason we wanted to be part of this case is because the law is about more than words or ideas. It's about real people. Yeah, a lot of people tend to think about these cases in a vacuum and they debate them as purely abstract legal concepts. But at the end of the day, the law has real effects on real people. And it's essential to bring those in front of the court because you don't just persuade people intellectually, you persuade them at a heart level as well. And judges aren't supposed to be, you know, just cerebral, robotic, you know, intellectuals. They are supposed to understand that the law has real world effects and take those real world effects into account. Being part of the lawsuit, standing up for the churches was a no brainer for Pastor Chris. It just seemed like the right thing to do to step up into that. I think almost any like clergy leader who would have been asked would have stepped into it because, I mean, it, it's just the right thing to do because you understand what this really is. And even before getting involved with Beckett or going very deep into the case, I, like as soon as I heard about it, I understood how the narrative was probably playing because it's hard to miss that narrative of, you know, like this preacher who drives a big car and has all his money and is like taking advantage of, you know, the people in the congregation and taking advantage of all these, you know, you know, taking advantage of the tax law and all this kind of stuff. And that narrative is just plain wrong. Like that's not the reality for the vast, vast majority of people. 
And there are ways to protect against pastors who would abuse the housing allowance. You could cap it at a certain amount. Uh, you could make it impossible for ministers to claim it over a certain income. And those are those are proposals that have been floated for a while and, and may well have some merit to them. But the point is you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't identify you know one possible problem with it and then devastate and eliminate all the good that this has been doing for almost a century. So Beckett intervened in the case on behalf of Pastor Chris and others. We made two main arguments in our filings. One was this argument based on neutrality. So a big question under the Establishment Clause is, is the government favoring religion or is it being neutral toward religion? And the atheist group tried to focus very narrowly only on one provision of the tax code, the housing allowances for ministers. And we said, no, you have to look at this in the context of the entire tax code. And there are hundreds of thousands of secular workers that are getting the same sort of tax treatment. So when you give ministers the same treatment as hundreds of thousands of secular workers, you're not favoring ministers, you're treating them equally. You're not treating them more favorably. Second main argument we made was based on history. Uh, and the Supreme Court has increasingly looked to the his historical meaning of the Establishment Clause. And at the, at the time of the Establishment Clause was adopted, uh, nine of the 13 colonies had established churches. And part of these, an established church was government funding of churches, but it took specific forms. It was land grants where uh, land was given to churches that would either produce income or be the site of a church or special taxes were imposed on citizens in order to pay the salaries of ministers. But what was not an establishment at the time of the founding was mere tax exemptions. Those have been around forever. Even when the colonies were getting rid of their established churches, they kept these tax exemptions in place precisely because uh, exempting the church from tax ac actually furthers the separation of church and state. It makes it less likely that the government is going to get entangled in the affairs of the church and therefore furthers the purposes of the Establishment Clause. The other side argued that not taking money away from a church is effectively the same as funding a church. But that argument simply doesn't hold water, and the courts have repeatedly recognized that directly funding something is very different from simply not taxing something. And the court considering this case, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, agreed. The Seventh Circuit ruled unanimously in our favor. It was a great opinion, and it clearly laid out how the tax code provides similar housing benefits for hundreds of thousands of non-religious workers and how this tax exemption actually furthers the separation of church and state and provides equal treatment to ministers rather than preferential treatment to ministers. The court also looked at the at the legal issue from a historical perspective, looked back at the long-standing history of tax exemptions for churches and how that was not viewed as an establishment of religion at the time of the founding, and so concluded that the history also supports this long-standing tax exemption. A great decision and one that had a real-world effect. I was relieved. Uh, I wasn't particularly excited about going to the Supreme Court. Um, I'm kind of a low-key guy, so I wasn't, you know, I was willing, but I wasn't super, you know, excited. So I was, I was relieved that it was over. 
Um, and I was relieved that the decision was uh, the right decision because while I guess I never felt like that we were going to lose ultimately, I did understand that if, if, if we did lose, it would have way more of an impact than most people realize that it would have. And so I was just, I was glad that it was over and that it was right. This case is a great example of how a bad reading of the Establishment Clause can be such an enormous threat. You take something like the tax code and mix it with that kind of misguided approach to the Constitution, and suddenly you have churches all over the country facing the very real prospect of not being able to serve the people who need them. And of course, the issue is both tangible and principled. Community services are at risk, and so is a fundamental constitutional principle. Fortunately, people like Pastor Chris are willing to fight for both. You don't want to separate faith from public life. Like, that's not the intent of of the establishment cause at all. Faith is so integral to so many people's lives that it has to be part of how we live our lives in public. And then our cultural heritage as Americans allows those types of social and spiritual clusters that we create for ourselves as free people to actually speak into the public square, right? You, you want to keep it balanced, you want to keep it fair, but really liberty is, is the way to do that, not restriction. Thank you to Pastor Chris Butler and Luke Goodrich for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.